I'm going to try to make my lunches every day that I come onto campus. Commit more energy to family relationships. That one I have not been able to do. I decided consciously not to put email on my phone. So I've been trying to listen more to myself. And as part of that, doing more meditative practice to check in with myself and find calm in our crazy world. From Stanford University and the program in writing and rhetoric, welcome to Rhetorically Speaking, the podcast that explores how and why rhetoric matters. This month, the RS team has been reading Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And it got us thinking about the machinery of New Year's resolutions and the rhetorics of guilt and optimization that surround it. It also got us talking about our own practices or resistance to New Year's resolutions. We think New Year's resolutions offer a rich, if troubling, example of late capitalist rhetorics of growth and optimization and how they play out somewhat uncomfortably at the level of the individual. So for today's episode, the RS team got together and had a candid exploration around the questions, why is it that so many New Year's resolutions focus on disciplining the body and denying pleasure and playfulness? And how might Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing help us navigate this trepid terrain? That's what we explore today, rhetorically speaking. I'm Janae Cohn. Um, I'm an academic technology specialist in the program in writing and rhetoric at Stanford University. I'm Jenny Stoniker. I'm an advanced lecturer in the program in writing and rhetoric, and I'm also the writing specialist for the human biology program. And I'm Cassie Wright, and I am a newly advanced lecturer in the program in writing and rhetoric and the Power to course coordinator. And joining us will be Jordan Tirico, who is our student associate and assistant producer. And today, for our 11th episode, we thought we'd talk about failed New Year's resolutions and how to do nothing. So we're going to talk about this topic by way of Jenny O'Dell's book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. All right, so let's talk about those New Year's resolutions. It's February. Jenny, you thought this would be a great idea. Why? Because everyone's given up on their New Year's resolutions by <laughs> February, right? Like you're like all in in January and you want to be really healthy or you want to institute some new practice in your life. And then something happens, life happens, you get sick or you get busy and the New Year's, New Year's resolutions go completely out the window. That's right. 80% are failed by six weeks. But I also think that um, part of the failure also comes from the cultural expectation of what it means to set a New Year's resolution, right? That a New Year's resolution is usually about something that has to do with like optimizing yourself, right? Like I'm going to lose a bunch of weight or I'm going to get really healthy and go to the gym, you know, a certain number of times per week. So it becomes this like constant exercise and like leveling ourselves up. We're always moving towards sort of like endless optimization. That's right. It's interesting too, because I always feel like the rhetoric around New Year's resolutions, like Janae saying, is about optimization and it's about, it's optimization in the form of discipline, 
which is um, interestingly puritanical, right? It's Mm. about the, in some ways, it's always this kind of turning away from pleasure, right? Like I'm going to not drink. Like so many people decide not to have any alcohol, dry January, or um, I'm going to work out, right? It's about disciplining the body, which naturally feeds into biopower for the state, so there's my Foucault reference. I finally made him in. I've been dying to make Good job. So Jenny O'Dell has something to say exactly about this concept of optimization, the need for endless sort of growth, novelty, renewal, um, when she writes on page 25. Beyond self-care and the ability to really listen, the practice of doing nothing has something broader to offer us, an antidote to the rhetoric of growth. In the context of health and ecology, things that grow unchecked are often considered parasitic or cancerous. Yet we inhabit a culture that privileges novelty and growth over the cyclical and the regenerative. Our very idea of productivity is premised on the idea of producing something new, whereas we do not tend to see maintenance and care as productive in the same way. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the Silicon Valley mentality and a lot of the kind of talk around computers is this idea of exponential growth, right? Moore's law, everything doubles in, you know, every year or whatever it is. So there's this talk of like exponential growth and of always doing something new and always doing something better. But in biology, that's not sustainable. That's not how actual organisms grow. They grow in like an S-shaped curve where there's like a period of exponential growth, but then they have to level off at some point. And sometimes they might go a little above the capacity of their environment, or sometimes they might dip a little below, but everything kind of stays around this this kind of maintenance level, which Mm -hmm. is what she's speaking to. And we don't like to be at the maintenance level because it doesn't seem new and exciting and novel. But maintenance doesn't mean that you're not still changing in some way. It's not that you're static. It's just that your population is sort of working at its optimized level, you might say. Homeostasis. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right? Like, you've reached a balance. Yeah. Oh, and uh, capitalism, with all of its rhetorics of exponential growth and free market competition, feeds right into this. Well, the New Year's Resolutions emerges precisely out of a kind of capitalistic impulse in Western culture. Buy this to do that. Right, Mm -hmm. which of course is seasonal and chirotic too, right? Because humans uh, love rituals, especially in the winter, right? When we have a seasonality to the notion of of spending Mm -hmm. um, and of convincing ourselves that spending will get us The self-care industry? It's big. It's been co-opted, man. New Year's resolutions and self-care and capitalism have converged into this vortex of boutique fitness, Mm -hmm. self-help journaling. I've fallen prey to all of it. (laughs) That's not inherently bad, right? No. And and it can be, that can be a way to do nothing, right? The concept of self-care could be a way of saying I'm going to unplug or detox or whatever, right? Shouldn't we always be striving for continual growth, continual change in order to make ourselves better people, right? Which That's is not new, thing. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I was mm-hmm. going to say this isn't new. Like Silicon Valley didn't get to optimization first. I mean, Manifest Destiny, Westward Bound was about growth too, right? It was predicated on rhetorics of the growth of empire. Yeah. Um, Silicon Valley just made it a lot easier to take with us all the time. Yes. And th- there was an interesting moment, too, where right there was always that puritanical asceticism and the rise of minimalism as a kind of ascetic aesthetic. This right. minimalism, it, it 
converges interestingly with rhetorics of austerity, neoliberal austerity, right? Do more with less. It is a privilege to be minimalist because if you throw something out that you turn out to need later, you, you can have go dis- buy one if you have that ability. Right. But mm-hmm. if you don't have that ability, it makes sense to hold on to things. Yes. But then that's looked down upon. And wouldn't that be the maintenance? Although that's an optimizing for a different feature, right? So are you optimizing for having less stuff? Or are you optimizing for spending less money? Well, it speaks to how challenging maintenance really is, right? Which is exactly part of the thesis of Jenny O'Dell's book too, right? That doing nothing, maintaining is so much harder than giving in to that rhetoric of growth, to giving in to the impulse to kind of keep striving towards growth or to keep even striving towards moving your attention from one novel thing to another. And isn't it so gendered, right? The idea of maintenance. Um, Jordan's going to join us now, so you're going to hear a door open and close. Hey. Welcome, Jordan. How are you? Good. How are you? Come join us. So, Jordan, what? Uh, actually, we should probably go around the table at this point and say what our failed New Year's resolution. Oh, we got. Yeah. We jumped right Uh-oh. into the book. So, what was your failed New Year's resolution, Janae? Or what were your resolutions, and how are they going? Oh man, this like actually gives me a stomachache to like Ooh. talk about. Um, maybe it's part of why we don't like to talk about failure. Um, so, my is kind of abstract, but the concept of my New Year's resolution was I'm going to pay more attention this year to myself. I have a tendency to kind of sublimate my own interests or even just desires for what other people want. So I've been trying to listen more to myself. And as part of that, doing more meditative practice to check in with myself and find calm in our crazy world. And yeah, I've been not really doing that. I was going to say, well. so did you purchase an app or was there <laughs> any type of consumptive behavior in support of it? And how's it going? Um, you know, I haven't, I did buy like a book that I haven't read. <laughs> not, not, not how to do things. It's a different, it's a different, like it's a workbook on how to check in with your, your anxious feelings and the need for putting your attention back and forth. No, no apps. Um, I do have a really nice yoga mat that's, that is intended to compel me to do yoga and meditate. Centering. Yeah. Centering. I'm not sure it's working. Having the thing is not working. That it's or excuse me. Having the thing is is uh, is only working somewhat well. It's just really I've still just been struggling to prioritize meditation because it feels like it's not doing anything. So I keep falling back mm. on just prioritizing things that involve other people or people who need me. I guess that comes back to the notion of care, right? Prioritizing the maintenance and care of everything around me rather than thinking about my own needs. Yeah. So. Yeah, it gives me a stomachache because I like it just feels bad to say out loud how you are not doing the things that you intended to do. Um, but it's maybe also cathartic in its own way to admit that it's hard. It's hard. It's just really hard. Jenny, what were your news resolutions and how are they going? Well, mine is it's a New Year's resolution, but it's also kind of something I do at the beginning of every quarter, which is I sort of like reconfirm to myself that um I'm going to try to make my lunches every day that I come onto campus. So I'm not stuck buying like $15 salads. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it definitely is something that I think about obviously at the beginning of winter quarter, beginning of the year, but I will, I will sort of recommit to it in spring and fall. So tied up with that though, I also, we have a garden in our, you know, in our yard and Part of it was like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure to use up the produce that we're producing in oh, our vegetable yeah. garden yeah. Um, because I get a lot of anxiety of like I plant things and you always plant more things and you like you just yeah. get excited and you plant lots of stuff and then you know 
however many weeks later it all starts to be ready and then it, it's instead of feeling like this bounty of like oh I have all this lovely fresh produce to use you feel pressure you feel pressure it's like there's this ticking time bomb where you don't want to waste things mm-hmm. yeah so there's lots of guilt around it Jordan hi hi, hi. how are you I'm Jordan yes you don't know my voice yeah. yes I'm doing well, I'm doing well. <laughs> our newest yes. protege at yes. Red Speaking so what were your New Year's resolutions? So I'm normally not one for New Year's resolutions, but I don't know. Something got into me this year. and New decade. I, it's it really was a new big. decade. I made a whole Google Doc. I was like, I'm committing myself. <laughs> I literally have seven New Year's resolutions, but I can go through each of them and probably extend to which they failed. But um, <laughs> commit more energy to family relationships. That one I have not been able to do. Which is just like call my parents, which is so easy. I don't know. Love you, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, reduce phone time. That one's actually been somewhat of a success. And what have you, how have you consciously tried to enact that successfully? I think just eliminating clear moments that I would pick up my phone, like notifications, just turn them off okay. for like messages and Snapchat and stuff like that. So like I'm only using those apps when I want to, like when I have a purpose, not just like aimlessly. Can I ask you why you felt like you needed to reduce your cell phone time? Because I was on it just ridiculous amount of time. Like, Did you check your screen time? Screen time, time yeah. Just... It was like five and a half. It was like, it was ridiculous. So, and, yeah. If being on your phone all the time mm-hmm. is a compulsion of FOMO, fear of missing out. For sure. Uh, is also learning to set boundaries of not being on your phone equally driven by a fear of missing out? Whoa. Yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty it's pretty deep. Yeah. Maybe it is fear of missing out on actual things and interactions with humans versus fear of missing out of just like both through a screen. I think prioritizing that is definitely, I think it's definitely a function of that, which uh-huh. is kind of weird to think about. What are we optimizing? I know. For? What yeah. are we optimizing? For, for whom? To what for end? Whom? Yeah. 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 Cause why, I mean, my perspective too is like, your on-screen interactions might be really meaningful, right? Like, cause you might be Snapchatting your family and improving your family relations, right? So like these things could be intertwined in different mm-hmm. ways. So that becomes this question too, of like how do media and spaces, um, sorry, mm-hmm. this is what I geek out over. How do media and spaces impact the kinds of relationships and, mm-hmm. and interactions that are, that are possible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's how these resolutions fail too, right? So we set up these expectations that are like laden mm-hmm. with assumptions about what's possible in these spaces. I think something that's substantial about like the ones I've been able to follow, specifically like the reduction of phone time, I think it ties into the idea of optimization. Like me not being on my phone, it makes it so I can do work better. So I can like follow my tasks and figure like my stuff out in a better fashion. But all these other ones, committing more energy to family relationship and stuff of that nature, there's no material like, I can't go to bed earlier. I can't finish myself quicker because I do those things. So the first thing that's kind of lost in my resolution age are the ones that are adding to my efficiency, which I think is pretty spot on. To Stanford what the book student yes. 2020 time capsule moment. Basically Stanford <laughs> in a nutshell. Yes. Duck syndrome. Yeah. Par excellence. Yes. So my New Year's resolution was actually to resist that compulsion. Um, it's been something that I feel like each year I try to do a little more in- intentionally. So I think that's probably what drew me to how to do nothing. Um, so it started six years ago where I decided consciously not to put email on my phone. 
um, as a way of resisting this compulsion to work Mm -hmm. always already everywhere. Nice. So for 2020, it was just like, I need to be more present with my family. Um, And I have found that this symptom of, I don't think it's unique to Bay Area parenting. I think it may be more pronounced here, but this hyper scheduling of your mm-hmm. kids and everything also possibly driven by a fear of missing out yeah. mm-hmm. um, of either what is now or what is yet to come. But I have wanted to just limit some of the extracurriculars. We are failing terribly at that. Say, <laughs> I, how's that going, Cassie? It's, yeah. it's really hard. Both because it's it serves a childcare need, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and also because they ask for it, and so you're trying to learn how to set healthy boundaries with them. But overscheduling them is a real challenge, and so it's been like, can we just hang out as a family mm-hmm. and enjoy literally doing nothing? Um, it's hard, and it's doing nothing's yeah. hard. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah. So this right. connects to optimization of leisure, right? Like mm-hmm. if we are always already so busy all the mm-hmm. time, which is something that her book is talking about, these services have kind of inserted themselves as a way to optimize leisure time by customizing it, right? Mm-hmm. So now just for you, I have right. this specific Spotify channel or just for you, right? So we're using AI to hack and become more efficient mm-hmm. even in our leisure time, mm-hmm. which is actually a really cynical read and kind of depressing <laughs> but it's also true for kids being overscheduled, though right because yes. oh you have to learn how to play piano and how to play soccer and how to do all of these things because it will eventually help you on your college application which will eventually help yeah. you get a job which like slippery it, slope it's a super mm-hmm. slippery slope totally and it's all part of i mean the larger concerns with, with capitalism again mm-hmm. but also the attention economy itself it, it, it thrives off of the anxiety both of, of fomo of missing out but also the sort of potentiality of like lost capital gains mm-hmm. for the yes. future, yeah. um, which is why I think it's important to bring in some of what Jenny O'Dell says on page 22. It says, I think that doing nothing in the sense of refusing productivity and stopping to listen entails an active process of listening that seeks out the effects of racial, environmental, economic injustice and brings about real change. Here's where I think it gets really relevant. I consider doing nothing both as a kind of deprogramming device and as sustenance for those feeling too disassembled to act meaningfully. Mm-hmm. On this level, the practice of doing nothing has several tools to offer us when it comes to resisting the attention economy. So obviously children can't be expected to do this, but as adults, right, we can see engaging in, in doing nothingness of, of resisting the anxiety-driven uh, FOMO or of resisting the sort of ready availability of endless customized stream as active resistance, right? As a way of, of saying, and this is an example she's later, I, I would prefer not to, right? Mm-hmm. A la Bartleby the Scrivener. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking of doing nothing as as a kind of labor dispute, yeah. as um, something where we're reclaiming that time. Actually, I think though, it's all the more important for kids who's, we're stretching out adolescence longer and longer, but we are also structuring it more Mm -hmm. to look like adulthood and labor, right? We're optimizing their productivity. And so we now have mental health issues and anxiety on the rise in pre-adolescence. And where other than Stanford is this more appropriate to talk about possibly, right? So Jordan. I think it's incredibly pertinent here. I think if you look at, I mentioned this in my fieldwork assignment, which I did this morning. Um, And I think, if you look at places like the epicenter of productivity and efficiency style approach to life is probably here. Like you're, we're in the middle of Silicon Valley yeah. in an elite college campus where people, 
that go to school here because they've been programmed to achieve and achieve and achieve. And I think that you can see that in the way that campus is designed, the way that everyone bikes to class. There's really not a lot of times outside of the efficiency cycle. You can clearly see what she's talking about. And you can clearly see how this book was written from a Stanford professor. And I think on campus, there are a lot of examples of things that you see in the book. Yeah, it strikes me as interesting to hear you say that, because I do think she's trying to reclaim a sense of play. She's she's talking about intentional play, right? Like she's mm-hmm. she's calling for this kind of blend of thoughtful, intentional interactions with our space and play and just being more present, which kids can be remarkably good at if given the chance. But maybe why we struggle as adults is because we come at it like work. And mm-hmm. isn't that what New Year's resolutions are? Mm-hmm. Is nothing but another task to check off on our habits tracker yeah. in our bullet journal, right? Yeah. Like, did I meditate today? No, it's a great point. Yeah, it is a great point because so much, uh, unfortunately, a lot of language of self-care, and this is to your point earlier, Cassie, too, has just become packaged, manufactured, and and sold to us, right? So things that we also have to sort of purchase to go on the to-do list also Mm -hmm. have like a kind of um, psychic weight to it um, that play inherently doesn't have so bye Janae we're gonna miss you thank you for your wonderful wisdom yes my pleasure Um, guys keep talking of course this was awesome good luck at your workshop and I wanted to bring in one of my new resolutions was to explore hobbies and I think this one was the first one that got cut like in terms of time (laughs) speaking of play speaking of play and I wrote I like wrote a little justification for all mine I got really into this for some reason but I said not much is done that isn't in the name of self-improvement and that is ultimately an unfulfilling way to live life and I think that's something that she says in the book pretty clearly and I think you're channeling Odell exactly and I think it goes into the idea that we don't do things as ends in themselves, right? There's yeah. always like, oh, why do you do this? Like, yeah, there's do. there's the question and the assumption that there's some ulterior motive of self-improvement behind everything that you do, That's every right. hobby. But yeah, I think you're right. Play for the sake of play is mm-hmm. regarded with suspicion, particularly in, in an economy that prizes itself on mm-hmm. efficiency and optimization. Yeah. And I think the idea is directly related to boredom too because I think you have to have boredom as a kid and there's a lot of I don't have anyone specific to cite so I'm just going to vaguely gesture that there's lots of research Mm -hmm. that looks into boredom and the importance of boredom and yeah kids these days don't have the ability to be bored in the Mm -hmm. same way that like you and I did head to our show notes page to learn more (laughs) we will find that research no but they do right they've they've published that study and then Mm -hmm. they've published the studies alongside that show that technology is literally rewiring our brain in ways Mm -hmm. that we don't we might now understand what the rewiring looks like but we don't understand the consequences Mm -hmm. of we don't have the longitudinal data so we are a giant social experiment in possibly rapidly shifting the way that we interact with technology and the way that impacts mm-hmm. our brains. But then again, and this gets back to Odell again, this right? Is interesting. We can't just yeah, yeah. drop out of society right. because this is the way our society yeah. is. Work, yes. But we can get to her idea of refusing in place, right? Mm-hmm. Of uh-huh. staying in society, but taking that step back and just kind of looking with a sort of more objective eye about the choices that we're making yeah. and why we're making them. Well, she talks about this with how all the designers of the apps yeah. refused to let their own kids interact with right. the devices because right. they understood how addictive they mm-hmm. were. 
um, but that that became the privilege of the few. So create right. the market, get mm-hmm. everybody else's kids yes. hooked on it, but don't let your kid do it. Right. Um, so who has the right to refuse in place? Right. And her mm-hmm. critique in the book, which I thought was really well pointed, was that is it only the rich kids whose parents right. know to look out? So I thought that was really interesting how she very very clearly in the intro of the book set up that this this is a book titled How to Do Nothing. Yeah but it's really kind of a call to action. Yeah, Like she's not saying, oh, everyone just like lounge around and not do anything. I think what she's saying is take the time to not do anything so that you can then re-engage back in society in a more intentional way. That's right. And that other people might not have the privilege. So that's it's your responsibility. Yeah. It was an interesting idea this resisting in place because it also brings me back to the idea that everybody needs a Diogenes, right? The the cynic or the performer. Mm -hmm. Because they, their job, their work, there is this kind of performative reminder of what's wrong. Um, so when I'm listening to you talk about this need to resist in place and to drop out to to come back in, thinking, who is the call to action really to in the book? Right. Because I think in some ways, if if it's putting it back on the individuals, it's just reproducing the very neoliberal rhetoric that she's trying to resist mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. 300, 200 pages or whatever. And I, I, I guess that's probably not really it, even though so many of the examples that she uses in the book are the individual and the individual level of resistance. But she's trying to push back on that, the idea of like the collective and what mm-hmm. is the and so she's I think she's very smartly drawing on the tension there. Um, but showing how difficult it is as a collective to do it successfully, right? I think that I think that something she spoke really clearly to, and I see every day, is just the lack of communities that are formed not around like collective characteristic. Like I feel less connected to my next door neighbor, who probably yeah. shares more of my identity or shares more of my experience, less of my identity than a Twitter follower that I know. And this grouping by identity, I think. It goes along with what we were mentioning about where she mentions the downfall of like union labor and like groups that are organized not around identity, but around like interest and around some common theme that doesn't just galvanizes. Yeah, that doesn't just remind me of you. Right. And that's obviously it's 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 natural to organize or to be drawn to people that remind you of yourself. Right. But I think that there's a lot lost in that. Yeah, she argues as much. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In In fact, more so important to surround ourselves with people who don't think like us. Exactly. um, Which our filter bubbles make too easy, to your Mm -hmm. point, to not have to opt into. And then Mm -hmm. when you think of how to do nothing is kind of a similar response of like, we don't, we have lost sight of who our communities are because we're so in tune with optimizing ourselves for work. I do think what I appreciate so much about her book is it's not this nostalgic call to return to yesteryear, which Mm -hmm. is too, that's like a lazy argument as compelling as it is. And it's sentimental, but it's, it's not realistic. Right. And so she has these moments where it's like, it's a refusal of nostalgia, but it's also this refusal of the Thoreauian sense of just dropping out without ever coming back in. She like won't let us off the hook. So there were these two kind of pressure points that I I thought she handled really well and appreciated um, because I think those were places where I expected the book to go as easy outs intellectually. Mm -hmm. And then she didn't and she complicated it and hung on to the messiness of it. Um, And I think that's what kind of gave me hope that it is possible 
right? Yeah, being purposeful. It's not checking out completely. It's not dropping out completely. Mm -hmm. But being purposeful about how we engage and what we're re-engaging with. Yeah. So that is a new kind of resolution. Thanks so much for listening. That's our show. But stay tuned. Since we couldn't do justice to How to Do Nothing in one episode, we're going to drop some bonus content here in the coming weeks. For more information about Odell's book and other research cited in this episode, head to our show notes page at rhetoricallyspeaking.stanford.edu. This episode was co-produced by the RS team, me, Cassie Wright, Jenny Stoniker, Janae Cohn, and our newest team member and student associate, Jordan Tirico. Theme song by Mon Placier. And it seems especially pertinent, given our talk today, to recognize that this episode was recorded on the unceded land of the Mwekma Ohlone tribe. We are privileged and grateful to work here.